Welcome back to another episode of Kindred Conversations. Happy Friday. I'm Paris Toos. And I'm Brittany Fry. And I'm excited for our episode today, but do you want to start with what you're grateful for first? Yes. Okay. I just have to say it has been like the best week. I feel like I had like 15 things I wanted to say that I was oh grateful Oh my gosh. For. I love that. So we've got to love that. Yes. Um, but yeah, I just feel like it's summer and I'm coming back to life and I'm so happy. Oh, good. <laughs> but I'm feeling extra grateful on um, just over the weekend. It's Memorial Day weekend last weekend. And my family and I went down to St. George, which is just like four miles so- or four hours south of where we live. And it's always nicer weather there. And I actually have a lot of extended family that lives there. And we got together with everybody that lives there um, on Sunday and it was just really really special I have a great great grandma who turns 98 this week oh my gosh and it was just really special to like get to introduce her to Lola and talk to her a little bit and it was just a really great reminder of the support system that Lola has and I'm just grateful that she is born into this pool of women that I so love and respect and admire and I just think that's a really cool legacy for my little girl. So that I'm just is, feeling really grateful for that. That's so special. She got, yeah, she got to spend time with her great-grandma, great-grandma, grandma, and mom, like, all at the same time. Yeah. Which, how many people can say that? No, that's so cool. I love that. Also, how do you have a great... Did you say great-great? It's Lola's great-great. Oh, okay. She's it's your great-grandma. She's my great-grandma, but, but still, she's Lola's great-great-grandma. 98 for a great-grandma? Yeah. I'm the oldest great-grandchild. I think she's young. I'm definitely the oldest grandchild. I think <laughs> I'm the oldest grandchild. <laughs> but oh, I love it. That's yeah. so special, though. Yeah, it really is. That's cool. Um, okay, I am grateful this week. I just went camping with some girls from my church congregation. That's like what I do for our congregation. Is I'm working with like. 16, 17, 18 year old girls. And it's so fun. Anyway, so we went on a little camping trip this week and, um, I actually was only gone. I felt like I was gone for like five days (laughs) and I think I was gone for just over 48 hours. So I don't know how, like, it's honestly blowing my mind that it was not five days, but, um, it was really fun. And I was thinking the whole time I was there, we drove like an hour away and it was so beautiful. And it was just the whole time I was there, I just could not stop saying like, oh my gosh, this is so pretty. Oh my gosh, this is so pretty. Like Utah right now? Like, can we take it's a moment? It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And we're like up in the mountains and there was, at the Aspens were so pretty and there were pine trees and a lake and just the scent of everything. Anyway, I just love being in nature and I'm like so grateful for that. I think it's, it's, um, a special gift that, you know, you don't have a backyard to enjoy nature. And that is, that feels special. It's cool that we can all be outside and enjoy like this amazing, amazing gift. So I'm grateful for that this week. I love that. Okay. I am so excited for today's episode. We read another book that we're going to talk about. And I know we've said this about a lot of the books we've read lately, but this one was so, so, so good. And I feel like it was one of those books that will color the way that I see parenting for the rest of forever I totally agree I totally agree it's funny (laughs) because every time we read a book we are like you have to read this yeah sorry but But they're um, good no they're so good and I do feel like doing the podcast has made me read books that I have like been on my list or you know genres of books that have been on my list but that I like haven't necessarily had the push to read and now I do And also we read them pretty fast, I feel like for the podcast. And there's something about just like getting, I don't know, reading them fast and listening to them all day that it's, it really, um, affects my thoughts, you know, throughout the whole week that we're reading it. It's like, that's all I'm thinking about. That's all I'm noticing. And I actually have really enjoyed that experience. I think it's helpful. I, I, some books I want to go back and read at a slower pace again, but for the most part, I feel like. I actually 
get more out of them yeah. going at a faster pace, which is interesting. I can see that. Anyway, I loved this book and I really did feel that way. I have not stopped thinking about it for two weeks now. Yeah. Every day I'm like observing these things and noticing <laughs> my parenting. And anyway, I don't know. It was great. Okay. We'll get right into it in just a second. And if you, it is a long book. I, I think it was like 13 hours listening to it. Um, so you don't have to read it, but we will give you all of our favorite parts. But I just have to say before we start, Britt and I have been reading it for two weeks now. And every time we see each other, we're like, but wait, what did you think of this? Like, <laughs> is your mind blown? Like, how are you feeling? Like, we can't stop talking yes. about it. So hopefully you guys find it as impactful as we did. But we're really excited to share. Yeah, but do you want to kind of explain the premise of the book and her theories? Yes. Okay. So I don't know if we said this. It, the book is How to Raise an Adult. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the subtitle is Break. I mean, it will be the title, so you'll know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> the subtitle is Break Free of the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Yourself, Prepare Your Kids for Success. And it's by Julie Lithcott Hames. I hope I said her last name right. Anyway, um, the idea of the book is that baby boomers... I would say this book is a tiny bit outdated. Like it was written. Yeah. Definitely still applicable, but a tiny bit outdated. 100% applicable. But some of the specifics that she talks about, she writes, she's writing to, I would say, a generation like 10, 15 years older than us. Anyway, um, the reason I'm saying that is because she is of the baby boomer generation, born in, you know, and raised around 60s, 70s. And she's saying that the way that they were raised was so hands-off and this is very accurate from how my parents have described their childhood that it was kind of open the door and their parents would be like see ya have fun and then they would have no clue where they were all day long until dinner time and the kids would come back you know and she just says like there are a number of reasons that we have tried to correct some of that carelessness and maybe hands-off parenting but that we have now all of the people who were raised that way so a lot of our parents have overcorrected and especially she's saying this is a middle class and upper middle class problem so specifically those who have the time and the finances to who who are actually able to overparent their kids and this overparenting and overcorrecting like this carefree parenting has actually resulted in kids being less resilient, relying too much on their parents, not, not, um, being independent, moving away from home, but not knowing how to do basic skills for themselves. Anyway, just a number of problems. Anyway, it has been really eye-opening and really, really interesting. Yeah, agreed. So the author, she was the freshman dean at Stanford, and she witnessed firsthand a lot of students get to Stanford, which is like the pinnacle of achievements. You know, they've made it to Stanford. And they, like, she tells one story of uh, somebody getting, like, a box delivered to the lobby instead of his dorm. And he, like, called his mom to figure out how to get the box, like, to his dorm. Do you, like, do you remember yes, saying it, that? It was the box was too big for him to carry by himself. Okay, okay, that's right. And he, I mean, he, he obviously was, knew he needed somebody else But he to help wasn't him. comfortable asking yep. someone. He wanted yep. to call his mom to call for somebody to, find to help somebody. him. <laughs> and there are just so many examples like this. And it makes you realize like, oh my goodness, I need, I need to raise an adult. You know, like I'm not raising a baby. I'm yeah. raising an adult. And kind of the idea is if, by the age of 18, when they leave you, you want them to be self-sufficient and resilient and have all of these other qualities that you would hope for your adult to have. You have to do that kind of in phases. You know, you can't do every single thing for your child and then let them go on their own and just hope that they're going to figure it out. You know, that starts with your toddler learning how to do chores and then like having a little bit of a longer leash and going to friends' houses and all of these different things that feel a little bit uncomfortable. But anyways, we will get all into that, but I'm going to start just as an introduction talking about the four main principles of the book. That's perfect. And then we will delve deeper into all of these, but just as an introduction, I'll tell you these four main principles. So the first is that the world is safer than we've been led to believe, and our child needs to learn how to thrive in it, not just be protected from it. The second, a checklisted childhood designed to lead to a narrow definition of success robs kids of their childhood and causes psychological damage. 
The third, a child learns, grows, and succeeds by pursuing their own interests and being allowed to try and fail and try and fail again. They need to think for themselves. And then fourth, a family life is richer and more rewarding for all when we don't hover and facilitate every aspect of the child's life. Okay, I want to talk about this first point, which is the world is safer than we've been led to believe. And our child needs to learn how to thrive in it, not be protected from it. So this was really interesting. She states a number of studies that have been done about kidnappings and whatnot. We all have, obviously, a fear of. But she, after after going through the studies and actually um, finding that the numbers of kidnappings or basically dangerous situations that your child could be put in have decreased in the last, I mean, this was written before 2010 and they had decreased drastically from 2000, you know? So it was really interesting, but, um, she's saying that our fears are, are not founded in fact, that they're actually irrational, which was really interesting to me. Well, she talks about how the news outlets, they prey on the fact that that is the most like having your child kidnapped is the most terrifying thing. Yeah. Like that's literally my, my absolute worst nightmare. Yeah. And like news outlets know that. And when a child is kidnapped anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world, like we all know about it. So it's not that that particular crime has gone up. It's just the coverage of it has gone up and our access to knowing about it has gone up. So before so that's why people were able to be a little bit more care- carefree about it. And now we all are so afraid of it. But she says the chances of your child getting kidnapped by a stranger, um, basically the chances are higher that they will die playing youth football than getting kidnapped. Or what was another one she said? like An equestrian accident. Yes, an equestrian accident. And that's not like if your child's an equestrian, that means like in general. Yeah. Like it's just, I feel like we cater to we make so many decisions based on the fear honestly I know I do like I make so many decisions based on the fears of my kids getting kidnapped when in reality that's a one in a million it's a one in a million chance yeah but the chances of them not being resilient and not having good coping skills and not being confident and independent like the chances of that are very very high especially if I'm not letting them have any independence and freedom right so I just that was a big eye-opener for me totally I totally agree I feel like my mom had a fear of that and I've internalized that fear yeah and I just like of course I want my kids to be safe more than anything but like it's really not it's really not a risk yeah so some of the activities that she was talking about that are, are actually very helpful to our children, but we kind of get in their way because of these irrational fears are things like biking to school or, or taking the bus to school. Yeah. Even, even to, yeah, she did. She did talk about taking the bus to school and some like really gave some like really wild stories. Well, I could totally <laughs> see myself driving miles to school, miles and Lola. Oh I yeah. Totally see myself driving them to school and yes, yes, having totally. them take the bus. But totally. you know what? Like that's a great experience for them. Yeah. And like walking to a friend's house in like in the same neighborhood, maybe it's just like a couple streets away, things like that, where they're like just out of reach, you know, maybe their school is a half mile away, but, um, things, things that are just out of reach. So you don't have complete control, but they're actually very practical and really safe situations. Yeah. Yeah. Like walking through your safe neighborhood that you know, your neighbors to get to school. Yeah. Like that would be an appropriate Obviously, there's an age, but that would be an appropriate thing to let your kid do. Yes. And she talks, too, about how we are ingraining in our children from such a young age. Don't talk to strangers. Don't talk to strangers. When, in reality, a much better life skill to teach them would be how to listen to their gut and recognize, like, strangers that make them feel uncomfortable. But also, you need strangers. Totally. That's important. And to recognize, yeah, just the street smarts of being able to recognize the difference in friendly strangers and not, you know, good strangers and bad strangers. It reminded me so much. (laughs) My mom, I actually feel like um, she was the young, the second to youngest of nine children. So she was, she was born in the 60s, but she was definitely raised um, like the generation older than her, 
her brother, her oldest brother was 20 years older than her. And she was raised a lot more like that generation. And so I think that came across a lot in her parenting. So she was pretty, I mean, I remember walking to elementary school when, with my sister when I was little. Um, it was, again, probably a half mile and there were two of us and, you know, we were capable. But I do remember <laughs> her telling us, like dr- drilling it into our brains, like never, if anyone offers you a ride, do not get in their car. Oh yeah, I got that. Okay, too. yeah. So she like drilled it into us. <laughs> And then this one day, my sister and I still laugh about this. This one day, it was like pouring rain and we're walking to school. (laughs) And my sister's friend, my sister's friend's mom was driving her to school. And she sees us and pulls over. And it's like, she was the sweetest lady. We knew her. (laughs) And she pulls over and is like, do you guys want to ride? And we're like, no, we're okay. You know, and she's like. No, really, like I, I'm safe. You know, you know me. Like I can take you. And we're like, no, we're okay. <laughs> anyway, to this day, Brooklyn and I are like, oh my gosh, I can't. Like we just couldn't. You know, it was like this rule of like yeah. don't get in anyone's car. But like, yeah, probably more appropriate would have been to teach us like, yeah, you know, a, people you know, a really great friend's mom is gonna be totally safe. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Anyway, I know. <laughs> That's so funny. And I mean, a good rule of thumb, but, but I just think that that, um, that example of learning street smarts rather than just completely isolating yourself from other people is a way better idea. Totally. And, and it's great to teach your children how to communicate with, I mean, she talks about strangers, like what does a stranger mean? You know, they need to be able to eventually talk to strangers at the bank yeah. and at a restaurant and in their school. And, you know, it's like there is an appropriate way to teach your children to interact with other yeah. adults that they don't know. Okay, this is a little bit, of, it's on topic, but it's <laughs> about Miles. <laughs> but we were at a restaurant the other day and he does this pretty pretty often. He never, ever wants to leave without a box for his food when yeah. we go out to eat. <laughs> and we were at, out eating and Miles is like I need a box for my food and we're like okay go ask and he like walks right up to them and he's like so tiny just like yeah but then he's like can I please have a box and he came back he's like mom they couldn't hear me I'm like okay go try try again and he goes and he walks up he's like can I please have a box and they gave him a box <laughs> and he came back like and he was just like so proud of himself beaming and I was t- telling Pierce I'm like this makes me feel like such a good parent totally that he could do that for himself and just watching that that confidence and the pride that he had in doing that task yes. made me feel so good. And I want to give him as many opportunities like that as I possibly can. I could not agree more. I love that you said that because I've been thinking about this when we go places and Brooks will say something to me like, can I have this? And I before would have been like, yeah, let me, you know, let me take care of it. And then you can tell them thank you or whatever. Yeah. And I have started to be like, okay, go let them know, you yeah. know, and their communication skills are good enough now that yeah. most adults will be able to understand what they want. Yeah. So I totally agree. It honestly does give your kids such a sense of pride in themselves yeah. and just to see them like stretch their little, you know, independence <laughs> Muscles, like yeah. I just really love that. Yeah. So agreed. Okay, the next point in that she makes in the book is a checklisted childhood designed to leave a narrow definition of success robs kids of their childhood and causes psychological damage. Had you ever heard that term before this book, checklisted childhood? I I don't know. It sounded familiar, but I couldn't like place. Ex- I knew what she was talking about when she said yeah. it, but I couldn't place like, oh yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. I knew what she was talking about too, but I, I don't know that I've ever like really heard it talked about. Yeah. But basically the idea of a checklisted childhood is basically like we do all of these things leading up to a very narrow definition of success, which is she talks a lot about like the Ivy League schools, which now feels very irrelevant as we have toddlers. Yeah. And even from like a preschool age, we're putting our kids in soccer and then they're going to, and then they're just going to devote their lives to it. And they're going to wake up early and go to school. And then the second they're done with school, go to soccer and then come home and do hours of homework and go to bed. And they're being deprived of all of these experiences and they don't get to just play or make friends or pursue their own interests because everything is so competitive. It's like, you have to have your niche at like two years old. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And I, I did feel too, a lot of this book is directed towards parents of 
teenagers, I would say, which I didn't mind having young kids. I actually found it really helpful. Yeah. But um, because it's directed towards parents of teenagers, I actually found it very relatable remembering my teenage years. Yeah. And I don't know that that pressure came from my parents, but there's for sure cultural pressure Uh surrounding this. And especially, which was interesting, she mentions this towards the end of the book, but one of the things that she says is if you come from a middle or upper middle class family, then there is this financial pressure on you and your parents for you, they, there's this, you know, unspoken pressure for you to do all the things through your childhood so that you will guarantee yourself a, a great financial situation as an yeah. adult. Yeah. Which is really interesting because obviously no parent is sitting their kid down, you know, at 10 years old and saying, you have to do these things so you make enough money as an adult. You yeah. know what I mean? But it's um, it's just like this culture, it's almost this cultural pressure that's just unspoken. Yeah. You know, and, and a lot of people assume it, which goes into this other idea of the checklisted childhood. She talks about the, what does she call it? Like an academic arms race. Yeah. And when you see the Joneses across the street are putting their kid in soccer at two years old because they want them to play on the club team that you have to get into at 10 years old to be able to make the varsity team in high school to be able to get the scholarship for college, then all of a sudden you start feeling the pressure of like, wait, I need to get my kid in soccer. Yeah. And at two years old, they probably don't even know what they're going to want to do at 10 years old. Yeah. But um, just this idea of like when you start seeing other people putting the pressure on, then you feel the pressure in your own home and you start to create your own checklist of childhood for your children. Yeah, but it's interesting to talk about like what you're giving up when you are enrolling your children in these extracurricular activities. Yeah. And um, she even talks a lot about like in the teenage years, how kids don't get to do a lot of things for themselves. Their parents are taking over. Their parents are providing for them financially and getting them a car and even sometimes like doing their homework because they have so much on their plate in terms of sports and academics and extracurriculars that they're doing to put on a resume to get into college. Right, and and you know as a parent that for a particular project, well, all the other, all, you know, I know all the other parents are going to be doing their kids. Yeah. So if I let my kid do it on their own, it's not going to be as good as the parents were doing it for and their then kids. All the, so now I need to do it and it just adds to it. And then all of the kids are graduating like as incredible athletes and haven't got, having gotten really good grades, but they don't know how to do their own laundry or cook a meal for themselves yeah. or, or even have the confidence to be able to uh-huh, do those skills. Uh-huh, just because they've been deprived in that way which is so interesting because obviously every parent is acting out of love for their child and so often we just I mean always we just want to do the most for our children like how do we do the most and it's interesting to realize that doing the most for our children can actually be doing less and totally letting them figure things out for themselves 100 percent so it was really interesting. They, they, this idea, she says, you are overparenting if one, you are doing for your kids what they can do for themselves, or two, you are doing something for your child that they can almost do for themselves, or three, your parenting behavior is motivated by your own ego. You find success personal success and personal achievement in your children's successes and achievements. Okay, I found this one very applicable because I thought it was a really good just kind of moment to look and say, okay, what am I doing? I mean, Lola's a baby, so I do everything (laughs) for her. But for Miles, like, what do I do for him that he can do for himself? And I came away with, okay, I should not be, I should not be um, getting him dressed. Like, he can get himself dressed. And so even working on that, like that's a skill that he can have and he needs to put his own, his dishes into the sink when he's done with them. I love that. I love that. I agree. It has been making me more aware too. And a lot of things I felt like would do here or there, you know, some days it'd be like, okay, how how much of your shirt can you put on? And like, okay, I'll help you a little bit. Or, you know, randomly would be like, okay, help set the table. But they aren't, they aren't like routine by any means yeah and it made me realize like these need to be routine you know just we have dinner every night you know (laughs) he can help every night he has to get dressed every day we can work on this every day 
And the thing that's so great about toddlers and young kids is they want to exercise their independence. They want to be able to do things for themselves. Yeah. So it's, and this is interesting because I set Brooks and Wells both on the bathroom counter every night to do their teeth. And like I have to set Brooks on the counter and Wells on the counter to do their hand, you know, wash their hands mm-hmm. or whatever. But because of that, I have like taken away a skill that they could be doing on their own right now. And yeah. like I end up washing their hands for them because yeah. it's easier when they're sitting on the counter for me to do it. So I just recently ordered a little step stool. It was just like a small observation I made in the middle of reading this book. Like, oh, Brooks should be doing this, you know? So I ordered a little step stool and <laughs> when I opened it and put it in the bathroom, Brooks literally spent like 30 minutes washing hands and brushing teeth Sweet. over and over and over again Sweet. because he was so excited about yeah. it. <laughs> anyway, I just thought like they want to do these things. We can use that to our advantage. You know, yeah. they if you do everything for them, there comes a time when they're older and you're asking, you know, even now, like Brooks could have been brushing his teeth probably better at a younger age. But now that I've been doing it for so long and I say to him like, okay, time for you. He's like, I don't want to do it. Yeah. You know, but if you kind of, if, if you're, if you stay just ahead, like how she says you're over parenting, you're doing things for your kids that they can almost do for themselves. I feel like that's where the motivation is when they're mm-hmm. like almost there. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And really, I think it's so, it's, it makes you want to do it more when you see how much they are enjoying it. Totally. You know, and if you wait like you said, if you wait, then they're you're like, why? Yeah. Are, wait, you've always done this for me. Yeah. It's like not as enjoyable. <laughs> okay. So she talks about things that we want to be able to raise our kids to do by the time they leave their house. And obviously preparing them to do these things starts when they're born. So the first one is talk to strangers and businesses. And we talk to everyone and tell them not to talk to strangers. But um, my sister, she's the youngest. And we've talked a lot about how the more kids you have, the less you can overparent them. Yeah. But I have a sister who's 15, and since she was like 11, she's made her own doctor's appointments and dentist appointments, and she calls and confirms, and she just like owns it all, which is so awesome yeah. that she can do that. Yeah, it is. And that was what was interesting to me about this list is she tells you like what you should have your kid do by the time they leave the house, but then she gives an example immediately after each one, like of what we naturally do to get in our own way of teaching them these things, yeah. you know? <laughs> okay. Another one is find a way around instead of driving them. We need them to manage deadlines. Um, she talked a few times about waking your child up. Obviously when it's age appropriate, they should be able to be responsible for setting their own alarm. And if they miss it and they sleep in, there's a consequence and they have to manage those consequences. And I love too about this managing deadlines, thinking about homework. A lot of, a lot of the lessons that we can learn from failure, if you want to use that word, for example, missing a deadline are so much less if you learn them from a younger age Mm -hmm. than an older age. So if you can allow your kids to fail at a younger age, it's actually really beneficial because they will have learned the skill by the time the consequences are like a little heavier. Okay, but it's so instinctual when your kid calls you and says, mom, I forgot my homework. Can you come bring it to me? Yeah. I think I'd say, yes, of course. Like, yeah. I don't want you to get in trouble. I know you did it. I'll do it. Yeah, you know? totally. But in reality, we should let them because the feel method, that yes. and feel that consequence. Yes. And then next time they'll learn because there was a consequence. Yes, the truth of the matter is like- When the stakes in, are low. In third grade, you know, even though it feels like a big deal- it's like no problem for them to forget their homework. And if they can learn that lesson then, then it's so much better than when they're a junior in high school and like working to apply to colleges, Yeah, you know? Yeah, or that was an interesting point. Or even like juniors in college or juniors in high school get shielded from it by their parents. Oh, 100%. And then they're they're in the work environment and they don't know how to do anything themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, The next thing she said was they need to be able to contribute to a running household. So what we do to get in the way is not asking them to help. Um, Another one is handle, I'm sorry, handle interpersonal problems. And we need to not step in. When there's conflict with friends, we need to let them figure it out. 
Another one was to be able to cope with ups and downs. And this was similar to the interpersonal problems that she just said so naturally we step in and solve their problems for them. But instead we can ask thoughtful questions and say things like, oh, you know, how does that make you feel? And how, what do you think you could do about it? And allow them to solve the problems themselves. Yeah. The next is earn and manage money instead of paying for everything. And this one, I feel like, goes really hand-in-hand hand with the checklisted childhood. Totally. Because our kids are so busy that the they don't have time, time to earn jobs. money. 100%. And so they don't learn that skill of managing money. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, the last one, she said, is to be able to take risks. And this is a big one because if you are over-parenting and following this checklisted childhood, then you really haven't allowed your child to take any risks over the course of their life and in turn as a consequence of that they have no grit or resilience which is much harder to learn as an adult than it is um to just like come very naturally as you grow yes okay she talks a lot about not just praising your child i think this goes along yeah but when we're just saying good job good job like, oh, you're so good at coloring, you're so good at whatever it is, then it actually encourages them not to take risks because they don't want to prove you wrong that they are so good at coloring or that this I is so loved good. the same point. Because I've heard, I've heard don't just say good job, but I didn't really understand why. Mm-hmm. And now it makes sense to me. Okay, I don't, I don't want him to feel like he can't be good at something because right. I'm telling him he's so amazing at every turn. Yeah. Like I want, I want to be able to say like... <laughs> You know what? That's not that I would say this, <laughs> but I want him to be able to make a drawing that's not good, yeah, and him be okay with that, yeah. You know, like he doesn't have to be the best at everything. He can take risks, and if he takes risks, and I don't know why I'm using coloring as an example because <laughs> I have a three year old. I guess that's why. But if he colors something and I can't tell what it is, you know, like that's okay. Yeah, totally. he doesn't have to be the best at everything. And when we're constantly saying good job, good job, good job. They're so afraid to prove us otherwise. Yes. Okay. The example I loved of this, and I think it's because it felt very relatable to me. I could picture this as a, as a high schooler, um, was that she said, when you tell your child or other people, you know, or telling your child that they're so smart, um, like they write a paper and you read it and you're like, this is so great. You're so smart. She said that phrase actually leads to kids, like there have been studies about this. Mm-hmm. It actually leads to kids choosing easier and easier topics, classes, basically any anywhere where they can exert less effort because they don't want to lose that label of smart. Rather than reading the paper and saying, you understood this topic so well and I love the way that you described such and such, or I love the effort that you put into understanding this. Um, when you're much more specific in your compliments, it actually allows your child to pick things that they can exert themselves in. So that like really blew my mind. Yeah. I loved it. I loved it. I thought that's so applicable. I can, I can relate to that feeling. Yeah. And I want, I want to be able to be a little bit more thoughtful in how I'm complimenting Brooks. Of course, I say good job a million times a day. Yeah. But, but I want to be a little bit more thoughtful in expressing that I'm proud of the way he's exerting himself yeah. and that he's learning and growing rather than because I think he's perfect or because yeah. I think he's so smart or because I think he's athletic or, you know, whatever. We can find pride in the effort rather than the product. Exactly. Okay, I think this is a perfect time to talk about authoritative parenting. Yes, I do too. So she talks about the four main styles of parenting. And I think just for time's sake, we'll just talk about authoritative. Is that a... Yes, yes, yes. So authoritative is basically what she recommends and definitely what I would strive for. Um, So the authoritative parenting style is an approach to child rearing that combines warmth, sensitivity, and setting of limits. And parents use positive reinforcement and reasoning to guide children. They avoid resorting to threats or punishments. The thing that I love, I mean, authoritative parenting should be fairly self-explanatory. I yeah. think, you know, when, when you think about 
passive or aggressive or passive aggressive like you want right in a personality I mean, trait like you want to be authoritative yeah like we've done how many and episodes assertive. yeah on like how many episodes on parenting and I think all of them whether or not we would have said authoritative parenting they all are in line 100 like, with these principles 100 so I love that I love that it's it's fairly simple and fairly self-explanatory to understand it right this is like something that that any parent can hear authoritative parenting and think okay how can I be an authoritative parent that I can allow my kid to fail and I can allow them to deal with hard things and see difficult things, but I can also be a support system and help them to learn and grow, mm-hmm. right? It's this really great balance. So kids raised by the, the book points out that kids raised by authoritative parents are more likely to become independent, self-reliant, socially accepted, academically successful, and well-behaved. They're also less likely to report depression and anxiety and less likely to engage in antisocial behavior like delinquency and drug use. So that that right there was so fascinating to me. This connection between authoritative parenting and it specifically in this section it mentions that it affects um, children's mental health. And I love that it it goes into detail about self reliance and and independence and whatnot. But um, in other chapters, she actually talks about how it also affects the parents' mental health. And mm-hmm. that was just so fascinating to me that allowing space for you and your child to be able to grow individually is really healthy for yeah. both of you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to talk more about that. So she talks about how to teach your child to do something. And specifically in this parenting style, she says she breaks it down into four steps and when you get comfortable with a step, you move on to the next one. And it's really important that you don't stall moving from step to step because you don't want your child to be hung up on one of these. Yeah. So the first is that we do it for you. So for example, I've been changing Miles's, I've been changing his clothes since he was a baby. And then the second is we do it with you. Third, we watch you do it. And then the fourth is you do it independently. She gave an example of this that I loved. Um, she talked about, I believe it was her son that was going on a, tr- a trip to Canada. I don't remember exactly why, but he was going on a trip to Canada and it was the first time he was ever going to fly by I, fly by himself and it was out of the country. So um, he was going with a group of kids and she said that there were two different types of parents that she observed. The ones who, when they got to the airport, um, walked up to the check-in desk and did everything for their child while the child stood by or the ones who stood back and let their child do the process unless they had a question you know and they could turn to their parent but she said the thing about that was it gave her so much more confidence to be able to let him do it on his own where in a safe space where she was standing right there so that when he was in Canada and coming back home, she knew that he would have the skills and confidence to be able to do it on his own when she wasn't yeah, there. She did step three. So yes. she knew that he could do step four. Yes. And I thought that was a great example of, of that process of like teaching you to, you know, first you do it, then you do it with them. Then you watch them do it. You, you teach them and, and step back and you're there for help. And then they're able to do it independently. Yeah. So she gives a list of age-appropriate things that kids should be able to do on their own. And I found this really helpful. I did too. So for a two- to three-year-old, she says, Small chores and basic grooming help put toys away, dress themselves with assistance when needed, clear their plate after meals, put clothes in hamper when taking them off, help set the table, brush teeth, and wash face with assistance. Okay, and then four- to five-year-olds, she said... They should know their parents' number, names, and address, which I thought that was like a great skill to work yeah. on. Uh, make, they should be able to make emergency calls, help with simple chores like dusting and clearing the table after meals. They should be able to identify monetary denominations and understand the most basic concept of how money is used. This, <laughs> this one's really interesting because, <laughs> because since Brooks was like, you know, 18 months, he and plays pretend store it's always a card credit card always <laughs> he's like he'll have he'll you'll hand him your 
pretend card and he'll swipe it and give it back to you. And he was doing this to my parents the other day. I mean, he's been doing it for a couple of years and he did it to my parents the other day when he was playing like, I don't know, pretend ice cream or ice cream man or something. And they both like, it was like they were realizing as it was happening, like, oh my gosh, he's giving me my card back. Like I didn't (laughs) hand him cash, you know? And it was just funny because I'm like, oh yeah, when we were little, we played money, not credit cards. So funny. (laughs) Anyway, so that is an interesting one. Like that's important to teach your children. Yeah. And, and you have to put a little more effort into it now, you know? Yeah. Um, brush teeth, wash face and comb their hair without assistance. Put dirty clothes away and take them to the laundry area and choose their own clothes to wear. And then six to seven, wash dishes, prepare food, and clean the bathroom. And then eight and nine, take care of personal items, take care of hygiene without being reminded or asked, follow a recipe to make a simple meal, count and make change, help with simple lawn duties, and take out the trash. And then 10 to 13 is working on gaining independence using the washing machine and the dryer which hello yeah i was not doing my own laundry in that age range there (laughs) how nice would it be if your kids were so so amazing i love it um oh and the other thing i have to say that i like about these is they do build they build upon each other Uh right so it's like two to three teach them to be able to put their dirty clothes in the hamper and then four and five like take their dirty hamper to the laundry area and then by the time they're um, 10 to 13, they, you know, they can, can do, their, do own laundry. their laundry. Yeah, yeah. I think that's cool. Uh, use the oven, stay home alone, mow the lawn, watch after younger siblings or neighbors. And then 14 to 18, this is when you're working on performing more sophisticated cleaning and maintenance skills, such as cleaning the stove, changing the vacuum bag and unclogging drains, fill a car with gas, add air to a tire, prepare and cook meals. I'm just going to be honest. I can do half of those things. <laughs> <laughs> I totally know how that feels because we do. I laughed as Johnny and I, as I've been explaining this book to Johnny. I'm like, uh, some of these duties, I felt like the younger ones. I'm like, yeah, I did that. But it was definitely this older age that I'm like, yeah. oh no, I did not but those do that. Are like important skills. They totally are. And I have been laughing because I'm like, a lot of those I feel like went straight from my parents to Johnny. <laughs> I'm like, mow the lawn. You know what I mean? I'm like, yeah. I, did, I didn't have a yard for a lot of years. So yeah. like now that we have one, it's like, well, guess that's you. you yeah. know? <laughs> anyway, I think these are awesome. Like how cool to be able to build on their motivation to gain independence and learn these skills for themselves. Yes. Okay. She gives a tip. This is like a little bit of a detour, but yeah. next thing she talks about um, something called the continual question approach. And so rather than like saying, how was your day today? And they say, fine. And then that's just kind of the end of the conversation. She talks about continuing to ask questions rather than just saying like, oh, or, or when they're showing you their painting, rather than saying, oh, good job. You can ask them questions and it helps them learn about themselves and it helps you learn about them more as well. So you can say, oh, like, tell me why you chose this color. And then they can tell you why and, oh, what does this make you think of? Or what part do you like the best? And just to keep them talking. And also it stops you from just giving them praise, but it also keeps the line of communication open. Um, I hope this doesn't feel like too much of a detour, Brit. But one thing that I found really interesting about this book is she talks about how important it is to be emotionally available for your children. And so we're trying to raise these adults and by doing that, we're doing a lot less for them physically and we're, and emotionally, like we're not handling their conflicts and things like that, but we do need, they do need to feel that we are emotionally available. And I think this is a really good way to do that is by trying to really, really get to know them. Really connect with them. Yes. And not just, not just, um, let them feel like, Oh, we love you because that painting was good or because you got an A or because you scored a soccer goal. But how did you feel during your soccer, soccer game? Like who was your friend? Tell me more. And you like want to get to know them. And I thought that that was a really interesting compliment to um, the idea that we need to be, because in some ways we need to be less hands-on, but we also need to be like more, more hands-on than ever. You know, like we need, we need to um, help them more than ever, but in, in so way. many ways, that means pulling back. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. I actually love that point. And I've been thinking about that. I feel like this idea is very in line with respectful parenting, which I appreciate because it's been something that I've been thinking about from, you know, Brooks at a very, you know, an infant as an mm-hmm. infant, I've been thinking about it. And this was very validating to me that I caught, I had read this part and then I caught myself, we were in the car and it literally, the example she gives is the butterfly and you know, talk, you see a butterfly and, and you're at, rather than just saying, did you, did you say this part? The example of the butterfly? No. Okay. She, the example she gives is the butterfly. And she says like, if your kid sees a butterfly, typically the typical conversation goes, what's that? And the kid says a butterfly. And the mom says, what color is it? And the kid says, orange and black. And the mom says, good job. And that's end of conversation. And she said, like, this is a very practical, you know, example for a young child. Um, This continual question approach is saying, like, you know, what's that? A butterfly. What do you think they're doing? And then they think about it. Well, it's on a flower. Why do you think it's on the flower? And they think of something. Okay, what's another reason? And you could maybe help them think of something else. Anyway, so it's, it's, it's this really great idea of um, digging a little deeper, allowing them to test their own knowledge, see what they know, see what they have questions about. And it's applicable from the time they're barely communicating with you until, you know, forever. Anyway, it felt very validating because Brooks and I were in the car the other day and we actually saw a butterfly. And very naturally, the question came out of my mouth, what is it doing? And I thought, hey, like I'm doing it, you know? And it was actually so sweet because, um, you know, he talked about what he thought butterfly food was. And he said, it's looking for a butterfly lunch. And, you know, we like had this great little conversation. And then later that day, I had gone, I had run, I had um, run into like a little, this restaurant that we really like to pick up our dinner. And Brooks was in the car and I parked like right, they have a take, they have a takeout entrance, which is right next to where you can park. So I parked right by the takeout entrance, ran in, grabbed it because it was on the side and then got back in the car. And Brooks was asking me about what he said, what happened in there? (laughs) And typically I will say, this is typically when I would have been like, I just got dinner. Yeah. But thinking about this, I'm like, oh, this is a skill I can teach him. Like I can teach him what my conversation was like. Yes. He wants to know. So, you know, I explained like, well, I, I got her, I got her dinner. And he's like, well, what did you say? And so I like walked him through the conversation. Did you, he said, did you tell him? Yeah, we want that. And I was, <laughs> so I like walked him through my conversation with them. And at the end, <laughs> at the end, he said, good job, mom. That was good practice. Cute. <laughs> anyway, I just was like, so proud of this, this um, conversation that we had. I just thought like, okay, this continual question approach, um, not only is it allowing our children to learn new things, but also it really is such a great, a great way to connect. So I love that you brought that up, that it's not just practical in terms of allowing them to think for themselves, but it also builds our relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that she talks about that I feel like goes hand in hand with this is the importance of family dinners and how during those family dinners, it's so important to have really engaging conversation. Yeah. And everyone should be participating and we should be asking meaningful questions and even having like discussions. Um, there really are, I didn't write any down, which I'm kicking myself, but there really are incredible there are incredible studies that show how important it is to eat dinner as a family every night. Yes, and I love some of the examples she gave. I hadn't thought about. I mean, just eating dinner as a family is huge. But oh. then the opportunity for conversation is it was actually really thought-provoking for me, the things that she brought up. I agree. She talked about having discussing current events. Yes. And she even gave the idea of having them argue for a side or not even argue but debate aside and then switch and that just teaches them to see things from another side and you can kind of learn the inner workings of their mind yeah and it's just a really good opportunity for them to discover how they feel about certain things and it engages the whole family as well mm-hmm. yeah she talked about playing like not just going along with you know what whatever their side is but like playing devil's advocate and yeah. pushing them to dig a little deeper and I just, and the benefit of them understanding that there are, there are things that they don't understand. 
mm-hmm. topics that they want to know more about, or maybe they want to be better informed on current well, and events. It gives them the opportunity to change how they think. Yep. And yep. it gives them the opportunity to speak for themselves. And that's something that I want Miles to be able to do. And Lola. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so used to just saying Miles. I know Lola same, too. Same. I, I want him to be able to speak for himself. And and our society is kind of turning out these little robots. Yeah. And she talks about, she gives um, some like bullet points of how to help your child learn how to speak up. And the first is that we need to value it and just recognize that childhood is for practice and they can make mistakes and change their mind and childhood is for practice. Um, she said, let your child speak for themselves as much as possible. This shows confidence in your kid. Um, that's a good reminder for me just when somebody is trying to talk to him or even I notice a lot of the time people will direct a question at me when they're really asking about miles. Right. And so I kind of want to turn to him and say, okay, like, what do you, like you answer? Yeah. Um, I thought this was such a good tip. She says, practice with your child. So for example, Miles going up to the worker at the restaurant and asking for a box. Like we, that's something we could have practiced before. Totally. If he was nervous, I could say, okay, practice, practice asking me. And we can kind of practice that dialogue. And obviously that's what we're practicing as three-year-olds. And that's a skill that will serve you through adulthood. Mm -hmm. You know, being able to practice those conversations that feel intimidating um, she says, resist the urge to step in. Give them the chance to do it for themselves. I like, can I just add yes, this please point do. specifically? I like, this reminds me a little bit of bringing up Bebe. This idea of, well, okay. She actually mentioned bringing up yeah, Bebe she in did. this book. She did, a few I forgot. Times. Yeah, she totally did. This point specifically, I think because what it looks like for me, resisting the urge to step in, is often it looks like allowing, it, it means waiting a couple seconds longer than I would like to. Yeah. So I took the boys to go get haircuts this morning and the girl asked Brooks where he wanted to sit. And I knew he was going to be pretty indecisive. So I, I didn't know how patient she would be. Yeah. But I really wanted him to kind of take charge of this experience. So I got down on his level and said, these are your options. What would you like? And like waited for probably longer than she was comfortable with. But it just reminded me that taking an extra five seconds to allow him to make a decision for himself is so easy and so valuable. Well, and so empowering to 100%. him. 100%. Yeah. And it showed him that you have confidence in him. Yes. And that you care what he thinks. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, how easy, you know, if I can... Just like take, anyway, I felt like this is a principle for bringing up baby is like, take a step back and like, wait just a second, you know? Yeah. And if you can practice that from a young age, like I feel like it will come much more naturally as they get older. And then the last thing she says is just add your thoughts only when necessary, but do it as additions to what your child has said. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's just, yeah. Do we want to split it there or do we want to split it further back? What do you think? Let's. Let's end it here so okay. that we have an ending. Okay. And then if we feel like we don't have it, then we can split it differently, but let's right. at least do it. Okay. That's great. Okay. And and I have about a thousand more thoughts and I'm really <laughs> excited to get into the second two principles that she taught. I feel like they're very, very different and very, very interesting, but we are going to finish those up in another episode and we will hope you will join us next week for part two.